like a locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona. Mixtape just around the corner, did a lot in California. Can't wait to drop this on you. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that. Smash like song and my songs gon' break through like a running back. Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton and not joining me today, my friend, my neighbor, my colleague, my frenemy, Mr. Mark Daly. And that can mean only one thing, that this is the first interview series podcast of the calendar year 2023. And this is an episode, this is an interview I'm super excited to bring you. One of the websites that I spend an awful lot of time clicking on and refreshing as the week goes by and I build the outline for our weekly news shows is of course planetf1.com. And Planet F1 had a very cool unexpected appearance in Drive to Survive last year, which I think has probably done a lot to bolster their already incredibly strong and loyal reader base. But today, joining us is F1 journalist from Planet F1, Sam Cooper. And Sam has begun building an incredible library of work covering contemporary Formula One. Of course, in the past, he has been a freelance sports journalist covering a number of different sports disciplines and sports. He worked for Daily Mail, but most recently assumed a full-time role with Planet F1 covering the ins and outs of Formula One. I really appreciate you joining us. We recorded this a little bit earlier today. I was a little bit under the weather, so I apologize if my voice seems a little bit off, but Sam was awesome, and I promise you we'll be hooking up with Sam again in the near future as we get ready for the 2023 Formula One Championship. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back on the flip side. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. Like I said before the break, we are incredibly excited to be joining today by Mr. Sam Cooper. Mr. Sam Cooper, my friend, the myth, the legend. Thank you so much for joining us. How the heck are you? I'm very good, thanks. Yeah, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. You know, we sit here. It is currently the beginning of January, the on the precipice of the 2023 Formula One season. But I want to kind of cut to the chase, my friend. How would you introduce yourself to our audience, and what would you want people to know about you? Oh, good question. Uh, well, to start off with the easy stuff. I'm an F1 journalist. I work for a site called PlanetF1.com, so you can imagine what we cover. F1. Um, I do. We do. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of stuff we do we obviously do the race and stuff like that but i think the stuff that i'm really interested in has always been like features and interviews so that's something that i've always sort of tried to strive for like who can talk to who can we talk to so just as an example of this last week i spoke to a guy who's trying to start his own f1 team so that was an interesting chat so yeah that's sort of like what interests me about the sport is i love the racing obviously but i want to know about the people who are involved with it because that's always where the interesting stories lie I love that. When and how did F1 originally intersect with your life? What drew you into the sport and kept you invested? And did you or do you follow any other sports currently? That's a good question. Um, Obviously, growing up in Britain, like Lewis Hamilton was a massive just everywhere. You you heard about him even if you weren't an F1 fan. I think I started to properly pay attention like... I'm going to say like early 2010, so when that Red Bull team and Sebastian Vettel started to like properly kick off, I think that's why I started to pay more attention than I did as a, a young child. And then, um, yeah, I think from then on, that was just I, st- I fell in love with it really. Like the last few years, like I think 
I think as everyone has, like Drive to Survive is maybe even more interested because you start to learn a bit more about these drivers. And like, yeah, I think that's just where sort of what hooked me in. And like, yeah, I found myself suddenly writing about it. And then here I am now. Um, in terms of other sport, I'm pretty universal. Like I love well football or soccer, depending what you call it. I love cricket as well, which is a very English thing. And I just like, it's hard to find a sport I don't like. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to watch anything really. When then, and, and you kind of talked a little bit off the top that you work for Planet F1 and, and the type of writing that you prefer or like to do or you enjoy doing, but when did you decide that writing and journalism was something that you maybe wanted to pursue as a career and where and how did you get started? Okay, right. This is a very long story, but I basically started, um, it's, I've always something i've always wanted to do like i was ever since i was a young kid i think as soon as i realized i wasn't good enough to play sport like the next best option was to <laughs> write about sport so um i started like i set up my own blog actually about barcelona football club weirdly because that was something like i was massively passionate about at the same that time and that was sort of when i was in like 16 17 years old and i did did that just like every it's pretty much every day like it seems mad now i was writing stories about barcelona which i i've probably struggled to do these days but um yeah, and then I got to uni and I became the sport editor of my, the uni newspaper. So that was another way because I lived in Manchester. So it was like a perfect place for sports. So like, I had the two massive football clubs and obviously wow. you're, you're of course, su- of course. surrounded by football. So like I was just writing about that. I got to interview a p- few people involved with that. And then from there, I came back. So I grew up in a place called Devon, which is like a very small county on the if you imagine England, that little shoe kind of bit at the side, that's where I lived. Um, so I went back to there and I got a job at a local newspaper. So like I was covering re- real sport. And I think my favorite part was um, I used to have to interview the managers. And obviously it was very low level. So they weren't full-time professionals. They weren't getting paid for it. So I'd ring them up like during the week and they'd be doing like a milk round or delivering newspapers or whatever, <laughs> whatever they did. Like, so, like, so I've got to put this through the door one set. And then you're asking them, how did the game go? <laughs> like it was a very surreal moment, that very Sunday league. But um, so I did that for a few years, sort of, cut my teeth as it were really sort of like it's it's hard because you get no information you have to sort of find it so um and then I got a job called oh with Business Insider actually so like, I started to write for their sports team that's sort of when I first began so while I was doing the other sport so a lot of the sport I was doing was football naturally because it's the biggest sport in, in England um after that I go to Insider I was actually started to able to write about right f1 for the first time which was amazing because i was loving doing it i was sort of there f1 correspondent got to speak to people like max verstappen which is like an amazing thing just to even have 10 minutes speaking to him and then yeah from there i did that for a bit and then i worked for a bit for a bit longer keep doing it and then start of 2022 so last year i started to freelance for planet f1 so i did a little bit on the side and then from may i've been full-time and it's been enjoyable ever since so yeah it's been a great almost year now and it's gonna hopefully 2023 is gonna be even more exciting that's such a such a cool story question for you and 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 it's a it's a tricky question because it's something that I have felt for a very long time, and our listeners know I feel this way, but it feels to me as though the F1 media, or at least a very specific pocket of the F1 media, typically those that are credentialed by the FIA and those that travel with the sport and are kind of part of the circus, the F1 media, like I said, the select few credentialed by the F or the FIA have come under or came under intense scrutiny by fans of the sport following the conclusion of the 2021 campaign due to the belief that in the months that followed at Abu Dhabi, that they were not challenging the outcome enough. 
What are some of the important stories that you believe because, and I like that you said this off the top that, you know, writing about current stories is really cool, but doing in-depth features and stories and investigations, that's what you're really passionate about. But what, in your opinion, are some of the most important stories in the F1 world that the media hasn't been aggressive enough to cover? I think I could split that into two parts. I think the first part is... Uh, in the world that we live in with the climate change and everything like that, I don't think there's enough focus on how like how mad the sport is as F1 in terms of its pollution and stuff like that. Because there's been a big push from F1 to sort of make it seem as if it's much more climate friendly. They're in from 2026, they're going to be using friend, uh, 20, yeah, 2026 for um, sustainable fuels. And then 2030, they're going to be carbon neutral, which, which sounds great. Like there's obviously good things to do. But at the same time, we've got like a calendar to come up this year. I think it goes like, at like two like a European race and then they fly to Miami and then they go back to a European race and you just look at that like why are you doing that that makes no sense logistically like you shouldn't be sandwiching these races in and like they, I think they do it again with Canada later on so like I think that's a big thing that people need to look at is like because I think when you have this impression of F1 and this sort of impact on the climate I think everyone thinks of the racing and in reality that's like nothing that's like absolutely fine because these cars are ridiculously a, a ridiculously emission free and stuff like that but the reality is that the costs of freight and like traveling these massive, like, like you call it a circus on That's absolutely a great way to describe it. And getting that from country to country, I think as viewers, we sort of take that as accepted. Like, okay, here's all these paddocks. Here's all these pit lanes. They're all fine. They're all there. And the next time they're there again. So it's sort of like, hang about, how does that all get over there? Like it's a ridiculous amount of freight that goes across and stuff like that. It's just obviously going to start polluting the planet and stuff like that. So I think that's the one thing I'd focus on. And also, I think it's to be more of a focus on where they're racing. Like, I think we saw with the World Cup, there was a massive focus on Qatar, obviously, because of what's happened in the build-up to the World Cup. And there was a real good focus from the media on making sure that the issues are understood and, like, this is why it's happening. But I think F1 sort of gets a free pass in my mind. Like, everyone was annoyed that the Qatar World Cup was on, and that was a month, and yet F1 signed a 10-year deal to race at Qatar. And, like, there's other places on the calendar of just as bad human rights record. And I think that is something that, personally, I'd love to see more of an investigation. And I think, unfortunately, the way that F1 is, it's, it's very hard to sometimes target these people because the way it works is it's, I suppose, because there's so few teams in comparison, like, it's not a league it's not of, like, 20-odd teams. There's 10 of them. So if you annoy one of them, that's like a sizable portion of people that aren't going to talk to you. And like, you start to lose your friends in the paddock kind of thing. So it's it's hard for a journalist to balance, okay, I want to investigate these stories, but on the same time, like, I also like want to, it, it sounds a bit weird to say keep the team sweet, but you know what I mean? It's sort of like not upset anyone without good reason. I think most teams and the FIA and F1 sort of understand that it's a journalist's job to sort of look into these things. And I like to think a lot of the time they do. I think Abu Dhabi was a particular case that, a lot of the media were like, well, we don't know what's happened either. Like, And I think when they asked the FIA, they were sort of like batting him away for a while saying, we'll look into it, we'll look into it. And then by the time they did look into it, it sort of died down. No one really cared anymore. I think the season was about to start. So, but yeah, it's, it's a tricky one to investigate these kind of stories because you sort of cut yourself off from the rest of the paddock if you go too hard. But like I said, I think they are important things that should be discussed more for sure. That's such an interesting point. And I, I didn't say this off the top, but uh, my co-host Mark Daly and I he and I used to both be credentialed members of the media covering major league soccer over here in in North America and he and I were having a conversation the other day after we'd recorded a podcast I was just like man like when you got your credentials and I got my credentials each year to cover to cover the sport we got the credentials under the under the 
understanding that we were going to go hard at the team and the coach and the players every day inside and out. And there was never a consideration from Major League Soccer that we weren't going to be credentialed as as kind of a byproduct. And at the same time, the teams had a responsibility to the credentialed media that they were going to accommodate us and they were going to be available for interviews and they were going to let us ask the questions. And in the world of Formula One, it it just feels as though whether it's Liberty, whether it's the FIA, whether it's the individual teams, that that's not something that they're necessarily accustomed to. And like you said, they will cut people off. So those folks that do have the credentials, they're not going to do anything necessarily to compromise having those credentials and being in and around the paddock. My next question is this. F1 has always had something of a dark underbelly, whether it's tobacco, recently crypto, questionable sponsors, Spygate, Crashgate, etc. And many of the sports PR disasters have actually been self-inflicted. Has the media historically done enough to hold the F1 and the FIA responsible? And and I, I think about this as a perfect example, but back in 2019, there was that secretive FIA Ferrari agreement that ultimately received little or no coverage. And, you know, if that was something that had happened in the Premiership or Major League Soccer or the NFL um, or any of these big global international sports mega leagues, that that's something that writers would have cut their teeth on and they would have been one, the one that wanted to break that story. But we had this huge secretive agreement between the FIA and Ferrari. And I think we can all we can all make assumptions about what was actually happening, whether it was the fact that Ferrari had found a way to defeat the, the fuel flow sensor or something like that. Like we all think we know what happened there, but ultimately we'll never know because of the secret agreement. But nobody ever actually investigated that and put together that 5,000 word story with 10 really great sources to kind of reveal what had happened. Do you think the media has done enough to hold the sport accountable? Um, it's a tricky one. I think you could always do more. Like you said, like compared to other sports, F1 is very, I wouldn't say protected, but they're very protective of their sales really like i think if you think back to this season just gone in 2022 if we imagine that um i don't know if it made a story over there but there was one uh, sky sports broadcast for us here and max verstappen wasn't happy with some comments made by them to be fair in defense of max i think some of the comments made were a bit harsh they said he got robbed he robbed the title when obviously he himself didn't do anything wrong in that 2021 season but he cut them off he didn't speak into a, for a race and that was sort of like a sign saying yeah we're not speaking to you so I can't imagine that would happen in any other sport, really. Like, it's, it seems mad to even think about that. You'd get, you'd get slaughtered for it. So there is definitely a case that F1 is a bit more protected, I think, for sure. Um, in terms of covering these things, I think the, the way they sort of get around it is they'll often say, oh, it's a legal matter. Like, we can't go into this stuff like that. And I think, yeah, I also think it's hard to get proof as a journalist. Like, no one's going to talk to you, especially if they're still within the organizations. Like, obviously, 2019 is still fairly recent. I'd imagine in 10, 20 years' time that we'll start seeing more in-depth things. I think we're seeing that now with Spygate. We're see- seeing more people come out and say, this is what happened, this is, this, is how, this is why this happened kind of thing. I think it's a case of, like we mentioned before, it's very hard for a journalist to draw that line of where do I, where do I go down without annoying the people that I need to use for my everyday job? Because as much as I love doing the story, like the reality is that bread and butter is covering races and stuff like that. That's the stuff that gets the most clicks. Like even if the investigative journalism seems more enjoyable to the author, like the fans want to come and see about race. And if you can't do that because of a piece you wrote, it's a massive, you shoot yourself in the foot really. So yeah, I think it's a mixture of not wanting to annoy the, the teams because you need to keep them on side. But also I don't think people within the sport who are involved in that are going to want to talk about it. So you're sort of using a lot of guesswork and you can't, 
you can't you've got to be very careful that you don't like libel yourself or def- defame anyone by saying these wrong facts because that's another way to immediately end your journalism career so yeah I, I always think there could be more but i appreciate for journalists it's a very hard line to walk really what are some of the things that you think the f1 media does do well and obviously on the show we're hugely critical of the press and and, and it's it's challenging i think because we sometimes look to the sky sports crew to provide some significant criticism and, and over here for instance the national basketball association is broadcast by espn and tnt but they are at the same time hugely critical of the teams the players and the sports but in the case of formula one and and sky sports they seem to be very much um an internal i would say mechanism for delivering the sport less so an independent arm of the media but what are some things that you honestly believe that the f1 media does do well in in the in in the spirit of giving them some credit uh yes yeah, go on that sky sports point i completely agree with you on that i think i think for sky like their it's their product really as much as it is f1's like they've obviously spent so much money to get the rights to it like it's not it's not unrealistic to think that they're going to sort of not show the bad light of it because they sort of want people to draw them in so like also f1 as a sport is it's like it's not as popular as like basketball in the u.s obviously basketball is always going to be popular in the u.s no matter what the broadcasters say but in the f1 and especially with a uk audience and a wider audience i think there's there's a need to sort of portray the best moments and i think there's always been a desire from sky to sort of make it oh, i don't know what i i can't think of a better word but like not as toxic but make it like more combative so like they're pitting Verstappen versus Hamilton. I think that's what sells to an average fan is they want to see this. Whereas that's not always the case. I think it's natural that these 20 drivers spend half the year together going around the world. You probably be quite good mates, even if you are racing. But uh, <laughs> in terms of what they do well, I think and this has happened that's happened since Liberty Media has taken over, I, I reckon. But I think you get quite good access to these people now. Like There's quite long sit-down interviews quite often with the likes of Verstappen and Charles Leclerc. And it's nice to hear about what they do off the track as well as what they do on the track. I think sometimes with sport, it's like a five minute interview after the game or whatever. And like, how did the game go? That's it kind of thing. But I think the average fan knows sort of what Leclerc and Verstappen and Hamilton are like away from the track. And I think that's quite a good thing, really, that we, we sort of personify these people a bit more. And I think there's, it seems to be more of a focus on like the, the mental like health of the drivers. So like it's not something that every sport considers, but I think this sport is quite good at sort of, cutting through the athlete kind of level and sort of seeing the human side and being like, this is who he is and this is why he does it. So I think that's something it does very well. I think that's also helped by the fact that there's just 20 drivers. Like there's not loads and loads of players and there's not, so you can really focus in and like every team has their fans. So like each team will be even more in depth. But I think overall a fan can have a pretty good knowledge of each 20 drivers without losing it from the sport really you've had the opportunity to interview and speak to a lot of people in the f1 world what is your current dream interview somebody that you haven't yet had the opportunity to speak to i've tried so many times but he's currently he's no longer the grim unfortunately but i'd love to speak to daniel ricardo i've tried so many times i've like emailed mclaren be like please go speak to him I, I think i came very close once and it sort of stop for whatever reason but yeah like i said i've been very lucky like into just staffing of into total wolf and george russell people like that but i think daniel ricardo just be a fascinating chat just to hear what he's like as a person really because you hear hear him off the track he sounds like a great bloke so yeah hopefully now he's got a bit more free free time i can sort of convince red bull to let me have a go but we'll see if planet f1 came to you with a blank check and they said 
you can go deep and do a feature on any topic in the world of F1 that you want, what story would you go after? Oh, that is a tricky one. Um, obviously, I'm sort of drawn to the two subjects I meant earlier, that talked about earlier, but I think there's also scope to investigate. I think this is something we're going to come to later, but investigate teams and sponsorship. Like, it seems to be a very murky line about what they sort of agree to. And I think that could be an interesting one, especially in regards to crypto of late, because that's something that's been massive in the F1 world and it's suddenly just gone kaput. So like, yeah, I think if I had a blank check, because I think it would take a blank check because I'd imagine there'd be a lot of lawyers' fees <laughs> with teams not very happy about what you say. But yeah, I think that'd be something worth looking into for sure. Growing up, who was your favorite Formula One reporter? Oh, good question. Um... I think I've always tended to like, I, I don't know if it's much known in the in the North America, but there's a newspaper here called The Guardian. I've always like really liked their coverage. I think they've always been very balanced and stuff like that. And just, they seem to write well. And I think there's a guy there called Charles Richardson who does um, a lot of their coverage. I just think he's always sort of on the money, really. Like he's, I sort of find myself agreeing with a lot of what he says. That's very cool. Let's take a quick break. Uh, we've got to pay some bills, but when we get back, I want to dive into some of the more recent contemporary F1 news, and there's a couple of topics that you yourself have written some really great stories on. So let's take a quick break, pay some of those proverbial bills, and we'll be back in a, back in a second. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Not joining me today, my friend, my neighbor, my frenemy, Mr. Mark Daly. And that is because this is a continuation of our interview series. And I am incredibly excited that Mr. Sam Cooper of Planet F1 fame is joining us. We have been doing a dissection of the F1 media as a whole. We've been talking about his background, how he got into writing, the type of things he likes to write about. But now I want to jump into some more pressing contemporary kind of recent F1 stories. And my friend, you recently wrote about F1's quote-unquote great American gamble and the fact that post-acquisition Liberty Media was most excited about expansion in the U.S. and China. I have a couple of questions. What has Liberty Media done that has enabled the massive and ongoing expansion of Formula One in the U.S.? And what does it need to do to sustain this? And then secondly, China was seen as an equally big financial opportunity for the sport. Of course, COVID obviously derailed this. But do you believe Liberty Media still anticipates a financial windfall from China in the future, especially as it begins to reopen to the world? So maybe we start with that question about the U.S. What is what? Is Liberty done well there and are they done and what do they need to do to sustain the growth that they've experienced there in the last three years? Yeah, this is a subject I absolutely love. Like, I'm fascinated by the way this, this has really taken shape in the last few years and like especially since Liberty's come in, it's been clear that it was the US and China. Obviously, we'll talk about China in a bit, but COVID largely squashed that before it got going. But yeah, the US expansion has been mad really. I mean, you'll be able to speak of it more than I have because you're living that side of the world. But um, I think for me, there's been two key areas. I think the access is so much better than it was during Bernie Eccleston. I think Bernie Eccleston did a lot of good and bad things for the sport. I think everyone's got his opinion of him. But I think the one part he never really embraced was social media, which is fair enough. I mean, he's, what, in his 90s now? It was a different generation. Like, he's not going to do that. So I think before Liberty took over, like, any time there was any kind of clip of F1, it was immediately, like, copyright struck down, get off Twitter and you're banned kind of thing. So, like, fans who didn't, watched the races or didn't really get involved never really saw any clips so like to them it was quite boring like they didn't they they 
they're not going to sit down and watch a full race if you don't know who or what's happening really um i think that and then i think also so the fact that you can now see more coverage in like short clips or like maybe an overtake or a contentious moment i think that's really helped bring in new fans who can see this like oh here's one exciting moment i'm going to watch that because that looks interesting but the second thing i think this is probably the main thing is from the outside looking in it seems like a lot of american sporting cultures sort of more focused on like the individual whereas in european i think they sort of focus on the team so i think an example i wrote during one of the pieces i wrote was it's not uh the patriots win the super bowl it's tom brady wins the super bowl kind of thing so there's always that focus whereas in the european that tends to be team above player kind of thing so like it'll always be the team listed first so like it's very rare i think maybe it's happened a bit more in recent years there's sort of been that shift more towards the individual but i think for american culture they sort of want that person to latch on to and like to say like oh he's our guy kind of thing so i think what they did that was smart was um and i spoke to um the chief marketing officer of the las vegas grand prix but she used to work for formula one in general before that and they were saying that there was a real goal to sort of make the drivers more recognizable like make them actual figures because i think f1 is hard to make it recognized because obviously it's the one sport when people have got helmets on well full helmets at least so you can't see their face they're sat in a car you can see all you can see is above their shoulders upwards so you're not going to know who each ones are and like i can totally understand if you just switch on a race on the weekend it's going to look so boring because it's going to be like these 20 cars going around a circle like why is this interesting i don't care about this but i think if you learn the narratives and i think this is where drive to survive in particular has been very good even if there is some criticism that it's not always entirely accurate, but it's it's accurate enough that it sort of paints a flat, fair enough reflection that you sort to learn, you start to learn who these people are. So you'd be like, okay, so he used to race for that team, so now he wants to beat that team. And I think that's what connects the average person to F1 is sort of learning these storylines, being like, okay, they're doing this because of this, they did this, and they used to race this, and he doesn't like him. And sort of once you learn that, it's much more interesting. So when you flick on a race of the weekend, you see, like, I don't know, Ricardo being overtaken by Red Bull. You'd be like, oh, he used to race for them. Was it a mistake that he left kind of thing? So, like, I think these storylines just make it more interesting and make it more accessible to not just American fans, but every fan. Like, as soon as you know more about the people. And I think the good thing about Formula One is they've got a lot of, like, personal people in it, like, especially Ricardo, as I mentioned earlier. Like, the fact that him and, like, Lewis Hamilton are appearing on American late-night talk shows is, like, mad. Like, 20 years ago... That just wouldn't have happened. Maybe Michael Schumacher might have made it because he's a huge name, but that just seems bizarre that they're they're on there. And they're not just talking about F1, they're talking about their life and what they do and stuff like that. And I think it's helped there's a current crop of like very like interesting people who like are in it. And I think so that was like the early years. And I think that was that was sort of them setting the stones, laying out their stall of like, this is what we want to do, this is why we're gonna do it. And I think the last well, especially this year, it's sort of like to me, at least, it feels a bit like a, a victory lap, really. Like They've got the free races. So again, when I spoke to the person from the Las Vegas Grand Prix, there was always the goal to get a race on the East Coast, which they obviously got with Miami, a race in like sort of Central America, which has always been um, Cota, and then this final race in Vegas. So there was always a goal to get sort of a West Coast um, race on. So the fact they've got three of them in a year, which seems mad like i don't i think it's only ever happened twice in formula one's history i think it with italy and the us which shows you how rarely this happens and the fact that it's come from italy which is perhaps arguably the home of f1 especially ferrari but um yeah i think it's just this year is sort of like their victory lap because they're getting all these viewing figures the and i think the the big sign that it's proving popular is not just the viewing figures because it's easy to click on a race on the weekend and watch it or have it on in the background but the fact that every session 
of every day is getting sold out and like they're big stands in the us like they're not tiny little cramped old european races they're huge huge stands and they're they're getting sold out every day even for like fp1 which is boring like it's just cars getting ready for the weekend but still people are there and they're loving it like i think that really shows that this has become a popular sport and someone is as likely to recognize lewis hamilton maybe not as tom brady but like as a popular sports person like they know who he is and like they know he races mercedes so i think that has been like a massive thing and i think that sort of also going moving to the subject a little bit but sort of that explains why someone like andretti really wants to get involved now because they see this opportunity to become like america's team like and really get i i know has class himself as american team but they largely operate out of uk and italy as well but i think andretti want to get in now and i think that's why general motors have come on board as well because they want to get this team and be like look we're america's team you can root for us and we'll like represent you kind of thing. So I think, yeah, it's been a massive concerted effort that's happened over the space of what, six, seven years now. So like, I think this is the year they sort of like the fruits of the labor have come to come to come to fruition, really. A lot of folks that are newer to Formula One, especially from the US may not realize this, but obviously we exited, we exited Indy after 2007 and the US Grand Prix reemerged on the 2012 calendar. We were still in the V8 era. Lewis won the first race, but by 2015, the Formula One race in Austin was very much a political hop potato because they couldn't give away tickets to the race. And furthermore, the race organizers were receiving huge subsidies from this local government and from the state of Texas. And it seemed at one point, if you flash back to 2014, 2015, that that race probably wasn't long for this world. And now you look at the fact that the race organizers are investing huge amounts of money, building additional grandstands to to support the demand that they have for tickets. And I think we have every reason to expect that Coda will smash attendance records once again this year, despite the fact that there are three races in the US. And oftentimes, I, I, I think that we have to look at the races in the U.S. as really being four. Like, yes, there's three races in the U.S., but really there's four races in North America because Montreal does a great job of supporting Formula One. They're a great big event city, but a ton of their fans get drawn out of Massachusetts and Connecticut and New York City and some of the surrounding states. So really, it's less about the fact that there's three races in the U.S., but really four in North America, five if you want to include Mexico City. It's just, it's incredible that, you know, a decade and a half ago, Montreal was off the calendar. There was no Mexico race, and we were exiting the U.S. to a point where you have five feverish, highly in-demand races in North America. And I think you're right that if F1 really wants to be able to sustain this, they can do that by having a real and meaningful U.S.-based and proudly American-based team on the grid. The other thing that I I really want to touch on, because I, I thought that this was really an aha moment for me when I was reading your piece on Planet F1 last week, but when Liberty came in, obviously they they kind of surveyed the Formula One, the global economic landscape, and they saw that there was an opportunity to control costs within the sport, and they've done that with the cost cap, and they probably also identified the fact that there were some markets that were probably underserved from a Formula One perspective, and one was the US and the other was China, but we don't talk about China because we haven't been there since 2019 because the government has been imposing such hugely strict, hugely strict COVID protocols. Of course, those have for the most part now been lifted and they're reopening the country to the world and allowing people to visit and they're lifting quarantine rules and people are now allowed to exit and visit other parts of the world. But what do you think 
F1 and Liberty's designs were for China? Was it another race? Was it to nurture lower levels of open wheel racing in that country? What do you think Liberty's long-term plans are for that country? Yeah, I think I think they've always had the goal of China and the US being the two big markets they want to crack. And I think COVID just came at the worst possible time for that. Like they came, I think, what, their third year of owning the sport? Like that's when it happened. So they were probably getting all these plans in place. Like they had the Chinese Grand Prix, but they obviously want to expand into that. And I think they'll they'll largely do the same of what they did to the US. I imagine they'll try and get more races over there or at least that region kind of thing. And like I was speaking to... um. He, he's trying to get on this grid called a Panthera, the Panthera team. So they're like Andre, they're trying to bid. And their goal is to like be the Asians team. So like they see is this massive market of like we can untapped, untapped source. And I think that's fair enough. Like currently, obviously Europe's pretty much saturated. It's going to be, if you're an F1 fan in Europe, like you're done. Like there's no, there's no real like big market you haven't capitalized on. So obviously F1 is going to look out. And the where do you look like? east and west like those are the two obvious they're two huge markets loads of people live there lots of money floating around especially like promoters and race promoters yeah i think i wouldn't be surprised i think the fact that the chinese grand prix got cancelled this year like very late on like it was pretty much a last minute decision saying we okay we can't do it but i think even now there's talk that it's going to come back like now that a lot of the rules have been lifted so it shows that f1 is really willing to like persevere and like make sure they're on the grid and like they were in that country and they've got a presence. Cause I think that's really important is to maintain that presence. We mentioned it with Cota. Like I think I don't think the Miami and the Vegas Grand Prix happens if Cota goes off the grid. Cause I think the, the interest is just not there. Like if you're watching races and not in your country, it's just, it's not as interesting. So I think F1's main goal in the short term is to get the Chinese Grand Prix back on the calendar, which they tried this year. And I think they still might do judging by the latest rumors, but just to make sure that sort of that consistent present and then sort of build that up. They're probably, I'd say if like the American like scheme and the American plan has been going on for like the five five or so years, so obviously starting that now again with the China China like expansion trying to get that. So I think it might be a few years yet, and obviously we're sort of almost hitting the ceiling of how many races can be in a season. I think twenty four is in twenty twenty three, and there's twenty five is currently the maximum in the rules. I don't know if they'll extend that in the in the near future, whatever. But yeah, I think there will be a desire to make more races. I mean, we've obviously got a lot of races in Asia already of like Singapore and Japan and things like that. But I wouldn't be surprised for more concerted effort, especially in China, which obviously such a huge market. Like if they can get two races there, then I wouldn't be surprised them trying to do it at all. The other thing that we haven't mentioned is that the Formula One driver landscape has changed since 2019. And we now have a very young, very talented and very marketable young Chinese driver on the grid. And I, I know that the race organizers in China are dying to get a Grand Prix back in that country so they can showcase him. How how big do you think that will be for China that they now have a Chinese born driver on the grid racing and representing that country? Oh, it's huge. I think it's huge for any country. Like if they there's one thing being interested in the sport, but if like if you have no representation in it, it's hard to get that attached. And I think especially for the Chinese promoters, like they'd love to use um Joe and say, like, look, here's a guy doing well, here's a guy in a driver representing us. Like for sure, his presence is massive. Like I think he's obviously had a lot of backing. I think as Antonio Giovinazzi said when he got booted out of the race seat, I think he said that money talks, but unfortunately it does like he's a massive figure he's good at driving like he's going to come with all this sponsorship he's going to get this new market involved so yeah naturally he's going to get picked it's a bit race on the seat and he seems to currently have the talent to back it up i mean he had a difficult 22 like a lot of reliability problems and he got absolutely destroyed by bottas but bottas is obviously a massive career veteran he knows what he's doing so i think this year could be a big year for him and like 
obviously that's a hugely exciting team as well of like Audi coming in so they'll have their own plans whether whether they want to keep Joe on or not we'll see but yeah I think the fact they do have a Chinese driver to sort of fly the flag and then if they combine that with a Chinese Grand Prix yeah that's bound to get people in that country much more interested than it would be if they weren't there there's actually been some huge news involving the next question since I wrote this outline and sent it to you but the question is the FIA recently indicated it would initiate an, a quote-unquote expression of interest for potential teams and owners seeking to join the Formula One grid. After resisting the overtures from Andretti for more than a year, why is the FIA now open to embracing new teams? And what types of entities does the FIA and Formula One really want? Independent constructors or manufacturers or a combination of both yeah i think it's been a massive time for this kind of subject like it seems to be really kicking off especially in january like hit the new year this is what we're doing i think it's good that they've had because it's been a bit of a wild rest west in the recent years where no one's really sure what they need to do to get on the f1 grid like it's it's very weird the way the sport works and the fact that you've got pretty much free pies that you need to impress to get on so you've got fia who obviously the, the sports governing body in charge of the laws and the rules and all that stuff and the official stuff you've got fom who obviously like the commercial arm of the sport and then you've also got the current f1 teams which were arguably the hardest ones to convince so like the fact that fia at least have come out and say right we need this done and i was speaking to um the panfera team owner that i mentioned he sort of they haven't set in stone yet what these exact what the exact process is kind of thing. But he said by the end of January, they should know. But he had a pretty good idea. So it was um, three parts of it. So they want to make sure that you're financially secure, which makes sense because they don't want to have a team join and then drop out halfway through the race. They want to make sure that you've got like the technical knowledge to make a team work and make a team run, like everything that involves in that situation. But also I think probably this is the hardest one to prove is that you're bringing value to F1 because that's something that current teams are really massively interested in. I think, the Andretti case is a really fascinating one because it's been, it's almost a year since they first announced they were going to try and start their own team. And ever since then, I mean, Michael Andretti must have the most, he must be the most like stubborn man I've ever met because he will not say no. Like every time he gets knocked back, he's like, I'm still doing it, I'm still doing it, which fair play to him. Like it's got to be very disheartening when pretty much all teams bar McLaren through Zach Brown have said, no, we're not having it. But yeah, he's been there. He's stuck with it. And like, I think the fact that now, I think the General Motors thing, you can't really under understate how big that is as a, as a move, really, as a sign of what how serious they are. Because the big complaint about Andressi was they don't bring value to the sport. And I think that was what Toto Wolff in particular, he was the, sort of the cheerleader for this, saying that it's all well and good you want to race, but taking from our side we've got 10 teams currently taking a slice out of the pie why are we going to give another slice to another team when they're not going to add to it but i think the fact now that they have general motors in there who's such a huge brand i think it was the sixth biggest car company in the world like to have them behind you and to really sort of sell that idea that you're america's team you can expand in the american market which is a huge market to get involved i think that's been crucial to getting the fia around the table really and i think it's interesting listening to the andretti bid like and the way they've been talking about it, it seems like currently they've got the FIA support, but that's only one half of the challenge, really. They've now got to go to F1 and the FOM and sort of convince them. And I think that's going to be the harder part. I mean, from the outside looking in, it seems mad that they're not on the grid. Like they seem to have done everything now, especially with GM behind them. It seems like it's going to be very hard not to say you deserve it. Because if you think, what do they bring to F1? Okay, they've got this massive manufacturer behind them. They, they're going to be America's team. They want to get American 
value in it. And they said, okay, have they got a racing pedigree? Yeah, of course they have. Like Andretti and GM, both independently of each other, have a massive racing history. I mean, the head of the Andretti family won the Formula One World Championship and then the son also raced in it. So you can't say they don't know the sport. And I think, have they got the money behind them? Of course they have. Like they must do. Like these are huge brands, huge companies that do have the money. So I think from the outside looking in, it's going to be very hard not to say yes to the Andretti deal. In terms of what F1 wants, it's hard to know, really. Like They're very closed door about this. They don't particularly talk about it very often, what they're after. I think they're after someone who's financially stable and who will be on the grid for a long time and brings value to the sport. So I don't think they're fussed about if it's an individual or it's a manufacturer, but obviously I think they're more likely to lean to the manufacturer side just because there's sort of that more reliability. There's sort of a assumed that they're going to be on the grid for longer than say an individual individual team. Because we've seen individual teams pop up now and again, they sort of last a few seasons and they disappear again. I think that's the last thing F1 wants. He wants to sort of set a base saying like, these are our, these are our teams. They're going to be here for ages. Some of them might change names, like thinking about Alfa Romeo and stuff like that. But large part, these are going to be here and they're going to be financially stable. I think that's sort of what they're after. I don't think they're really fussed. I mean, if an individual team came and said, look, we've got this amount in the bank, like we've got these people working for us and like we can bring this market, I don't think F1 will have a problem saying, yeah, come on in then. So yeah, I think it's it's hard to know really because they're, they're very secretive, which makes sense because they don't want to, I think the 200 million entry fee has obviously made it much harder for people to join because they don't want a huge list of everyone who's got a car in the back of their garage. You're like, oh, can we come? So yeah, I think it's been very smart by the FIA at least to sort of get an established process saying, this is what you've got to do. This is what you've got to show. And hopefully, I think the early signs that it's going to be about May time that we're going to see the results of these processes. So I can't imagine Andretti won't get approved if, and they'll have to find a good reason if they don't, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the argument for Andretti or against Andretti has been, hey, you're not going to bring value as Total Wolf said, but bringing a brand new manufacturer, a brand new OEM, there's literally nothing else that he could do to prop up this bid of joining F1 and joining the grid. What we do know about the Andretti General Motors bid is that at least initially, although they perhaps have designs on developing their own power unit eventually, but at least initially, they're going to be a customer unit team. And recently, some senior executive at General Motors stated that they have an agreement in place with an established power unit supplier to buy and rebadge power units to start. Who do you think that is? I think we probably look at Renault because Andretti has previously spoken about having established a relationship with Renault, but GM also has a technical relationship and a technical partnership with Honda, and Honda may be looking for reasons to stick around. Who do you think that that agreement is with? Yeah, it was interesting. I was in that press conference, so it's a press. I can't. It's either Mark or Mike Royce, one of the two. But he was the he's the president of GM, and he was saying that they've got a signed agreement. They wouldn't elaborate on who that was, but. I think it's easy to sort of narrow some... Well, we know sort of who it's not. So I don't think it's going to be Mercedes just because they already supply so many teams on the grid. I think if they had a deal, like the FIA or an F1 would be like, that's not really okay. Like, I doubt it'd be Red Bull just purely because they're sort of getting off their feet. Like, they've, they're they not officially a, an engine supplier. They, they obviously, their engines are a bad Red Bull powertrains, but they still get a lot of help from Honda. Again, I don't think it'd be Ferrari for the same case about Mercedes. They already power Sauber and Haas as well. So there's a lot of Ferrari engines on the grid, which sort of does leave you with Renault. Like that would make sense that there's this team that currently only supplies themselves. But whether Renault have proved themselves, because obviously the Red Bull debacle a few years ago sort of made Renault not that favourable. And the fact that they're the only team that's 
us at Applied by Renault sort of speak volumes, really. But I so if I had to guess which of the four current teams, because he did say it was one of the current suppliers. So I think that must mean it's one of the four. If I did have to put my money on it, it would be Renault because that would make the most sense. But like you said, like they've had this massive relationship with Honda. And I think the fact that 2026 is like opening these doors to so many more teams getting, so many more engine suppliers, sorry, getting involved does make these options so much more. Like how long this signed agreement is for, I'm not sure. Like whether it's the first couple of years and then they get to move, it would make every sense for them to go with Honda because they've got, this massive partnership with them obviously got the electric vehicles they do together so like if you had to pick one that would make obvious sense it would be to them but also i don't think we can rule out the fact that they sort of want to become an all-in-one team so yeah they do want to make their own engines at some point but but it's one thing being on the grid for 2026 it's another thing entirely making a new engine for that point it takes so much more money like there's levels to being an f1 there's being a customer team which is already expensive enough but when you're trying to make your own engine it's even more it's like a few layers above so yeah I think for the meantime, at least, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if it's like the first five, six years they're in F1. Like they are a customer team. Maybe as you say, they do what other teams have done in the past, just rebrand an engine, but we all know secretly it's a Renault engine. But yeah, I think in the future, at least their long-term goal does seem to be made to make their own engines and maybe start supplying other teams as well. Cause that's a handy way of getting cash in the door. Let's jump into one more question before we take a break. And this is something that you alluded to a couple of minutes ago. And it's a question that I'm fascinated by, but recently FTX, a once major sponsor of Mercedes AMG F1 suffered a rapid and catastrophic financial collapse. For those that aren't super familiar, FTX was a cryptocurrency exchange and crypto hedge fund. It's its founder is now being charged with fraud after losing billions of dollars. Did F1 teams and do F1 teams perform enough due diligence when creating partnerships with these crypto companies and other companies in general? As of last September, for instance, 80% of F1 teams on the grid had a crypto partner and F1 themselves had a $100 million deal with crypto.com. Yeah, I think that's... Uh like the probably the big question at the time really is like these teams i think it was only williams who didn't have some kind of crypto sponsor and i think personally i don't think f1 teams do enough at all really like uh, they do probably do due do diligence in terms of their company and their finances and making sure the deals they're getting uh up front and they've been paid in full but i think they sort of have they must take more responsibility on what they're putting on their car because they've got such a captive audience like people see their brands they sponsor and you sort of you put in your name on it so I think fans have every right to look at that, look at that brand and think, okay, this is a trustworthy brand. It's on the Mercedes car. Like I love Mercedes. I'm a big fan of Lewis Hamilton, whatever. Like, of course, like I'm going to think FTX is a good and safe place to be. And I think we've seen with crypto recently, like the massive fall in um, it's worth basically like people have lost huge amounts of money. And like, it's obviously not going to affect the team. Like the team have probably got their sponsorship money already or had insurance in case this happens. So like the people that really hurt, so like the individuals who put their savings or whatever, like their spare change in there, they've suddenly lost it. Like I think F1 teams have to take, I mean, it's hard to say because the last time we had any sort of dealing in this situation was with cigarettes. And obviously that only happened because the world health organization stepped in and said, right, right, right. Yeah. So these true. are unhealthy. You can't do it. Like, I think the fact that it's not got, I know obviously there's mental problems, like mental health problems involved in losing lots of money, stuff like that. But the fact there's not a physical something that they can point out, like this is killing people, stop doing it. Like it's up to the F1 to sort of police themselves and think it's going to be very hard to convince them to do it. I think the fact that, I mean, it doesn't look good for Mercedes brand at all. The fact that 
they've been associated with this company that that's essentially gone bust in a, in a day really like it's, it doesn't look good that <laughs> so true. it doesn't look good that your name suddenly one day their names on the side of your rear wing and then it's gone the next day like it's got i think they'll take note of that i mean i don't really blame mercedes i think that every f1 team sort of going to sort of look for the new money especially crypto is booming like when they signed that deal like it seemed like a fairly reasonable thing to get involved with like but i think there does need to be a bit more recognition that especially in sport like sport fans are so dedicated like if you if you were a mercedes fan and you wanted to get involved in crypto you probably went to ftx purely because it was on the side of your team's car so like you wanted to get involved with that and like this the same it's, i'm using mercedes as an example but this it's the same up and down the grid like red bull's uh rear wing so i, I made the point during ask i wrote that when max verstappen was having that problem with the drs i think in spain it was like everyone was staring at a crypto logo as that was happening like this thing is everywhere like and they also sponsor the miami grand prix so like it's massively involved in f1 but i think there just needs, needs to be more recognition of like okay when we put our name when we allow these names on our car we're sort of giving the seal of approval that fans for rightly or wrongly expect these teams to these things to be safe and to be respected and as we've seen with crypto, there was a good article by um, Sports Illustrated recently that showed the value of all the sponsors in F1 in crypto and like they've just gone to nothing. So I think McLaren's one was worth like five grand and it's now like two and a half grand. So like people are losing a mass amount of money. And I think there just need to be more from the teams to take a personal responsibility. Fair enough, it might hurt your bank balance, but at the end of the day, like it's people at the end of at the end of it who are getting hurt. So I think you've just got to be like, okay, let's not do that in the future. That looks silly, we look silly we've cost people presumably a lot of money. It's not our fault. I, I'm not blaming Mercedes for losing people's money. Like I, I think that's too far, but I think there does have to be recognition that at least if you put them on the grid, I want like good awareness, like good. I don't want like a small print on the side of the advert saying you may lose money. I thought to be like fully aware you're risking it. It's essentially gambling. Like if they had gambling sponsors, they hundred percent. That was exactly my thought. Exactly. Yeah. My thought. If they have gambling sponsors, like, I think you're obliged to put, you will lose money if you're not careful. So I think they should do the same with crypto. But I can't imagine crypto is going to be back on F1 cars anytime soon after the last few months, at least. Sam, let's take one more quick break, pay some of those bills. And when we get back, I have two more questions for you and three listener questions. And then we can wrap this up and let you enjoy the rest of your evening. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. Be back in just a second. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton and not joining me today, my friend, my colleague, my friend of me, my neighbor, Mr. Mark Daly. And that's because I have a much more interesting co-host today. Joining me once again is Mr. Sam Cooper of PlanetF1.com. My friend, the next question I have for you is this one. Tia Bonato effectively jumped from Ferrari before he was pushed. At what point do you think that John Elkan and Mr. Vigna lost faith in the direction he was taking the team? And when do you think Ferrari leadership proactively began pursuing a new team principal? And finally, does this move by Ferrari set them back or propel them forwards in their chase for one or two championships? I love talking about Ferrari. They're the most fascinating team because it's they they operate in a completely <laughs> different way to everyone else. Sometimes it's like, why on earth have you done that? Like it's such a madhouse. And I think the 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 season last year was incredible. Like the, some of the decisions they made. I think 
there's no team quite like them. They're so stubborn in the way they work, which is fair enough because they're Ferrari. But th- there's no team that has the pressure of a whole country being on your back. Like, I can't imagine what they must feel like when they open the newspaper on a Monday morning, having made a mistake and like they're getting slaughtered by the Italian press. But in terms of when they lost face in Bonotto, I personally, I think Bonotto sort of become the scapegoat. I think a lot of the problems of Ferrari just weren't his problem. Like he didn't cause them. I think if we look back, Ferrari's issues I think there was two main part departments that where they fell down was reliability and strategy and like fair enough he's the big boss he oversees both of them but he's not the one in Monaco telling Charles Leclerc to pit at the wrong time like he's he's relying on his strategist who is studying all the data to know that it's not a good time to pit and they're just not doing it they're time and time again they're just proving themselves inadequate especially compared to Red Bull Red Bull like got fantastic strategists like they know what they're doing they've got a b c d e planned ready to go and i think poor charlotte club must be tearing his hair out during a race where like the that engineer comes on i can't remember his name but he's got such an identifiable voice and he's like we're going to plan d and you're like how are we on d it's like lap three like what's happened like the, the fact that they've gone through <laughs> these things so i don't think the problem was with the team principal i think he's unfortunately the face of it so he had to go like you said he resigned technically, but I think he was going to get pushed out the door if he didn't. And he's sort of, he's a very proud man. I've got like massive respect for him because he's been for Ferrari for ages. So like, it was obviously wasn't an easy decision for him to step down. And overall, I think he did quite a good job at Ferrari. He's oversaw, like, it wasn't his fault the 2020 car was terrible. And he sort of steered the team through that. He's got Charles Leclerc to be one of the best drivers on the grid. So I think he was just a full guy, unfortunately. Like, that's just the way Ferrari works. And it's just a fascinating place, like... The decisions seem to come out thin air at time. In terms of when they lost faith in him, it's hard to know really because I think even with like four or five races to go, the leadership was saying they were behind Bonotto. So whether they were saying one thing and then saying another behind closed doors remains to be seen. Or whether they did get to the end of the season, they'd be like, right, let's have a change kind of thing. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if like halfway through the season when it was pretty clear they weren't winning, even after winning two of the first first few races, like that looked like their time to shine really. Like, when it was clear Verstappen and Red Bull were disappearing over the horizon. I think also when it was getting worrying that Mercedes were right behind them and Mercedes who had this terrible start to the season and looked miles off it. The fact that they're now like 50 points behind is like extremely embarrassing for Ferrari. Like, And the fact that you had all these on-grid moments. Like, If you think the 2022 season, it's hard to think of another team messing up quite as badly and often as Ferrari did. Like, You could pick so many moments where like they just shot themselves in the foot time and time again. And like... Charles Kerr obviously felt that because sometimes he was just outright ignoring his engineer, but like, no, I'm doing this. So the fact that I think Leclerc and Verstappen are such a good comparison because Verstappen is pretty much left to do the driving. Like, you do that, we'll look after this bit, and it works great. Whereas Leclerc has been team strategist, team principal, and lead driver all at the same time. Like, his mind must explode during a race. He must be exhausted. So in terms of, I think Fred Vassal, it's going to be interesting how much control he gets. Because I think Alfa Romeo slash Sauber, like he was the top boss. Like anything goes that he wants to do. Like he's, he, it was his final say, but whether he gets that Ferrari, I don't know. Because I think one of the main things has been his change in job role. So at Sauber, he was the CEO. So which obviously the top person in the company. Whereas in Ferrari, he's the team principal, which sounds like it's the head boss. But in reality, there's people much higher above him who will have a final say. So, I trust him. I think he's good. Like he's obviously you you don't get to be an F one for that long and have fairly good results without being knowing what you do. So if he's given the room to work, then I think yeah, they'll be they'll be okay next season. It's hard to predict who will win the championship. I think it's between one of three currently. Obviously Red Bull, Ferrari, and then Mercedes as well. I think they'll be back. But um, I think also 
I think the, the problems are still there for Ari. I think the strategist probably needs a change. Like they've been there for ages, the strategy team, and they seem untouchable in some weird way. It seems like the team principal always bites the bullet for their mistakes. So if they fix that or if they stop making ludic- ludicrous decisions and also the reliability is another thing that I touched on like they need to make sure that Ferrari car isn't just randomly exploding during a weekend like it needs to be one of the best cars it needs to be like Red Bull and Mercedes I know Red Bull had the issues early on in the 22 seasons but after Imola it was just completely fixed so if you want a chance for a title like you have to be near perfect in every single race and like can they do it we'll see like I think it's a huge year for them really like 2022 was good because they came back a long way up the grid from where they used to be but it still felt like a disappointment for how it actually turned out and i think they've got everything in place to see they've got a really quick car they've got two good drivers and now they've got a good team principal like in theory everything should work but it's ferrari so who knows what's gonna happen <laughs> one of these stories that started popping up throughout the fall was that there was some pretty significant discord between mattia bonato and the team's presumed lead driver charles leclerc and that may have contributed to his exit from the team that uh, charles leclerc's management team may have begun lobbying folks within the ferrari I would say superstructure that were significantly higher in the food chain than was Bonato himself. Do you think there's any truth to the discord between Charles Leclerc and Matteo Bonato? And if there was, do you think that may have contributed to his exit from the team? Yeah, I think well, it's hard to know if they spoke direct, but I think the way it works in support is like someone will moan to someone and it sort of gets passed up the tree and eventually the top bosses will hear it. I don't think they had the best of relationships. I think we saw that. I can't remember what race it was, but Leclerc was very angry for whatever reason and Bonato was seen wagging his finger at him. And I think that was pretty much the last straw for their relationship. Like from that point onwards, Leclerc was like, I don't like this guy. I'm going to get through it. So, and I think Ferrari have always, always shown that Leclerc is their number one. Like, so if we think back when Vettel was there, Vettel came with the idea that he was number one driver but as soon as Leclerc started appearing like Ferrari like okay then you sort of got this tug of war of who's got control and in the end Vettel left which made sense because he was the older driver he sort of realized he's fighting a losing battle and Ferrari sort of turned cold on him so I think Ferrari are gonna do that they want to keep Leclerc he's their best asset he's like one of the top three drivers on the grid like they have to make sure he's happy I think that also massively shows why Fred Vassour has been appointed because obviously they worked together at Sauber they seem to have a really good relationship so I think his hiring must have been I'm not sure they probably wouldn't have gone to Leclerc and said is this okay but they would have sort of sounded him out seeing like who would you like to have like of the people we could get like and I think if he's even said oh I had a good relationship with Fred Vassour that's going to be very tempting for Ferrari to be like okay you've got a good relationship let's get in let's get him in but on the flip side, that's also very interesting if you're Carlos Sainz. Like, the fact that Ferrari have gone out and got a team principal pre- but designed for Leclerc, like, where does that leave you? Because in theory, they've got no number one driver. But I think in the same way at Red Bull, that everyone knows that Verstappen's the number one driver, I think everyone pretty much knows Leclerc's number one driver. So whether they get him in and that annoys Sainz, we'll see. But I think, yeah, it was a smart move. I don't think Leclerc and Bonotto, their relationship was that warm. I think it was getting a bit strained, especially towards the end of last season. So yeah, I'm not surprised that one of them went and it was always going to be Bonotto rather than Leclerc. Or the next question here is related to my single favorite topic in the entire world of Formula One. And it reads, because I, I want to make sure I, I state this correctly, but I wrote on the outline, in October of 2020, Honda announced that they were exiting Formula One after 2021. 
It was later revealed that the new Red Bull powertrains division would buy slash borrow the existing power unit IP so they could continue building Honda designed power units through 2025 when they would deploy their own internally designed power unit for 2026. Since Honda agreed to physically supply Red Bull through 2025 from Tokyo and now Honda badges are back on the Red Bull cars. Honda slash HRC then registered with the FIA for the 2026 F1 engine rules. What changed with Honda leadership? If they do return, what do you think their entry will look like? A supplier or possibly a works deal? I think simply put, Honda got massive FOMO. So like they, they left the grid <laughs> and they, I think they made the decision to leave the grid. I think it was about 2019, 2020, like whatever like year it was. But, and then suddenly the Red Bull engine becomes a monster and like they, they're in their Japanese Grand Prix and they're seeing their, their badged car win races and their driver win the world championship. And they're suddenly thinking, Oh God, what have we done? Like, why have we done this? This is a stupid <laughs> thing to do. Like, it's so hard to get on the F1 grid. And we were there and like, we suddenly decided not to be there for whatever reason. I think the main reason they said was Honda was focusing on electric powered vehicles, which is fair enough because that makes sense with like where the global market's going. But I think the money to be made in F1, the brand recognition was huge. So I'm not surprised that they've A, assisted Red Bull with their engines. It'd be bizarre for them to be like, no, we're cutting you off completely. Like that'd be completely harsh for them to do. And it also makes sense they sort of get some, at least their logos on the car that's often winning races now. So in terms of 2026, I think they'll just be an engine supplier. I don't think they'll have a team. I think they'll try and get a few teams back to them. I, they will, obviously won't get Red Bull because Red Bull have spent all this money making their own powertrain division, which seems to be going rather well. Like the, this, you're in here, hearing great things out of Milton Keynes. But I think they will try and get a few teams to be them. I think obviously they've got a good CV. They can be like, look, we gave engines to the world champions. Like, we know what we're doing. Like, we're one of the most recognized engine suppliers in the sports history. We know what we're doing. And if, if you're a company arriving at the sport, are you going to go with Audi or are you going to go with Honda? So obviously Audi are a huge company themselves, but they don't have a pedigree in F1, whereas Honda do. So like you might be more tempted. So yeah, I can't see them put a works team on the grid. I don't think they're ready for that step, but I can see them definitely being an engine supplier, at least in 2026. Before we wrap this up and let you enjoy the rest of your evening, we have some listener questions. And the first one comes from Layla in Riyadh. And her question is, how does the FIA intend to possibly govern how drivers express themselves on and off the grid? Where do you think this mandate to restrict political, religious, etc. expression came from? Is this the FIA's doing or something that was pushed for by the teams and Liberty Media? To answer the first person, it beats me how they're going to police that. That is incredibly hard to police. I think it's not something that's well known, but like I think Pierre Gasly before every race does a prayer. And like I think also Sergio Perez has like the Virgin Mary in his car. So like, do they count as religious symbols? So they banned? Like, it's an incredibly hard thing to um, police. Because I think you can't specify. Like, it's got to be a blanket ban. You can't say, oh, you could do that, but you can't do that. Like... It's going to be incredibly hard to police. I wouldn't, I've, I've written about this before, but I think it's it's no surprise that it's come at the same time that Sebastian Vettel's left the sport. Because I think if you think of the big, I would say big mouths, the big, the big voices in F1, it was Vettel and it was Hamilton. So one of them's gone. Hamilton's now going to fight this battle on his own. I don't think there's anyone that's going to be stepping up in Vettel's place to talk about these issues. So it makes sense that, right, we do it now. Like he's gone, like Vettel's gone, he's out of the picture. 
let's do it um in terms of where it's come from i think it has to be race promoters and some of the countries that f1 races in like there's obviously such strict rules and like they don't want to have a driver rocking up to their track and having like an anti-government message or anti-whatever the government policies are so i think there will be pressure on the fia from the race promoters really like saying we don't want religious things we don't want like political statements so like yeah i think FIA have like massively dug themselves into a hole like how do you police that it seems like such a hard thing to differentiate and like you sort of get into the the realms of like freedom of expression really like people these drivers are allowed to express themselves like they're human beings like they can talk about what they want like regardless of what country they're in so it's very hard and it's just like a complete mess to like I think some it's it's made uncomfortable for the drivers at the end of the day because they're sort of now finding themselves being used as like political pawns, which obviously they were to an extent anyway, but for someone like Pierre Gasly, who's doing a prayer before he gets in a car that goes 200 miles an hour, that seems perfectly reasonable. But now it's become a big talking point because suddenly you're not actually religious, um, re- religious acts anymore. So yeah, I think it's impossible to police. It shouldn't have been done anyway. And like, good luck to them trying to, trying to police it really. <laughs> Sarah asks, last year, the W Series championship was shut or sorry, shut was cut short due to a lack of funding. Why doesn't Liberty just buy W Series? It would be a great look for them, and clearly they have the funds, given that they've launched the F1 Academy for Women in late 2022. Another question that I have no idea why they didn't do that. Like it seems it was like particularly like I'll say like grotesque, like towards the last end of last season when like F1 was enjoying. I think they were posting profits of huge, huge margins, and on the flip side, you've got W Series, which is just struggling to even put on races. Like it was such a contrast in image that how much money's floating around in one and how much money's not floating around the other like um i I think the f1 academy thing is a is a good idea like i think that's a good way to get more women especially involved in the sport and like yeah because i think they're they're on such a i've been lucky enough to speak to jamie chatter a few times she's one of the one of the best women drivers and like her experience came much later than boys do because boys start go-karting when they're like six seven years old i think max was doing it was about four so like they start so much early so women are always like massively trying to play catch up so if this can help in that way that that's a good thing but like the listener said like i don't know why they didn't fair enough that they don't want to buy it but like at least give them some support make it like an f1 supported competition to it's it's a good thing to have women racing like it looks good for the sport it's just another thing for watch as well if you think of a race weekend fans get treated to another race like regardless of who it is they want to see it like it makes it makes sense to do it and it it won't be a huge amount in the money like obviously to us it seems like loads like millions of dollars there's loads of money but to f1 it's like a small drop in the ocean like it's, they've got enough in the bank to support these series which are important like the fact that jamie chadwick's now gone off to um indycar instead of competing in the other series is telling like she wants to go somewhere she knows she's going to race all year so like she's sort of moved further away from the f1 landscape but yeah i think it's it just made no sense that f1 didn't didn't help out in some way at least and i i i hope like i really hope the f1 academy works out great and like they get the next generation of women drivers come through and we sort of see them make the break into f4 and then f3 and up the ladder and eventually hopefully to f1 but yeah like the listener said, it didn't make much sense not to at least help financially when you're posting record profits and this other series, which is not trying to make money, but is literally just trying to get women drivers more experienced. To not help them out just seems a bit a bit poor, really, from F1. Esteban asks, with the F1 calendar 
bulging already. Is there any chance that a French Grand Prix can find its way back onto the calendar? Uh, in a short term, no, I don't think it will. I think France isn't that interested. I think to get back on the calendar, like we've seen this, like with Spa, we've seen it with Monaco, like F1 is demanding more and more money to get races on race circuits on the grid, which makes sense because they've got countries that are offering huge amounts. So they're obviously going to want to do more races over there. So places like France, which is a good track, but it's not like a historic track. It's not like Silverstone or Monaco. Like that was obviously going to fall by the wayside. I think the fact that Spa came close to not being on this calendar this year is like a huge sign. Like that's one of like, I think if you ask any racing driver who's racing F1, which track it is like, they're going to say Monaco, they're going to say Monza, they're going to say Silverstone, they're going to say Spa. Like those are the tracks that everyone loves. They think it's iconic, it should be on there. So the fact that that's struggling to keep this place, I mean, I don't think in the best of intentions, in the best of any world, is like France is going to get back, unfortunately. Like not for a long time, even though there's two French drivers, there's a French team, like you'd think there'd be every support for it in the country. But I just don't think there's that motivation yet to put up the kind of figures that F1 wants. Ahmed asks... For more than a decade, we've been talking about the collapse of Formula One interest in Germany. How was this possible? A German manufacturer, Mercedes, has dominated since 2014. Vettel won four titles since 2010. Rosberg won in 2016. Mick Schumacher appeared on the grid. How and what has to be done to reignite the interest in Formula One in that country and possibly get a German Grand Prix back on the calendar? I honestly don't know. Like, I think Sebastian Vettel's talked about this a lot, obviously, because he's got a vested interest in it. But it just seems, I think to get an F1 race, you have to have quite a lot of support from the government as well of that country. Like They have to be on board. Like They have to make it sort of easy for F1 and FIA to say yes. And I just don't think the German industry, German government sort of wants to spend their money there. They've got other interests. And I think, especially being one of the most like climate focused countries in Europe, but like they're not going to want to support a sport that does massive emissions every week. So like, it makes sense. I just don't think there's, I think obviously there's a massive German interest. Like, like the listener said, there's German teams, there's German drivers, and it's going to be even more German teams, obviously Audi coming in. But um, I just don't think there's that, there's that money. It's, it's similar to France, really. There's just not that financial benefit yet behind it. There's not enough desire to get another German Grand Prix back on the grid, regardless of how historic Germany's been in like F1 history. I mean, I think they're probably like the fourth or fifth country that's had the most German champions, like most champions in F1. So yeah, it's like, it's mad that they don't have a home race, but it is what it is. Unfortunately, that's the way F1 works. Sam, I cannot thank you enough for joining us and giving us your time today. It obviously means the world to both of us. My friend, where can people follow you on social media and where can they check out and stay in tune with your latest work? So on social media, I'm Sam Cooper underscore on Twitter. And then on Instagram, I'm Sam Cooper F1. So as these car launches go, like come out, I'm hoping to go to some car launches. So put a lot of images on my social media and stuff like that so that's a good place to check me out and then in terms of my writing it's largely for planet f1 so planetf1.com and like all the writers are good there so if you if you don't see my name feel free to click on it but yeah we're all, we're all quite good on there so yeah that's where you can find me my friend thank you so much for joining us for everyone listening at home you can of course follow us on twitter at scuderi f1 pod if you enjoy the show if you like what you're listening to and you listen on spotify if you can give us a rating that would be fantastic and if you listen on apple Podcasts, a rating and a review means the world to all of us if you're listening on monday tuesday wednesday just a reminder that we'll be back on friday with our latest new show we are inching ever closer to the season and we have tons of coverage coming up over the next couple of weeks and months. Thanks so much. 
Bye for now. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that. Smash like song, them in my songs gon' break through like a running back.